Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day in a rather deserted city of Westminster in current times, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Nicole Williamson. Nicole is the Operations Director at ECP Limited, a specialist training company working with any organisation that comes into contact with children children, young people, families and adults who are at risk. Nicole, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us on this fine day. Thank you. Great to be here. It's fantastic uh, having you as well, and thank you so much for taking the time to uh, come and join us. Now, um, Nicole, the purpose of this discussion is to really establish your take on leadership. So if we dive straight mm-hmm. in and look at that word leader in isolation, how would you define that? What does that word actually mean to you? I think I'm going to give quite a personal reflection, if that's appropriate. If I think about leadership roles that I've undertaken within my career, of course, being an effective leader is about ensuring that there's a clear outlined objective and that you influence others in order to accomplish whatever that objective is within your organization is or beyond. Actually, I think it means much more than that, because to have an influence, you need to have belief and respect and an understanding of the why in relation to those who you are leading. Because ultimately, if you're not being followed by people who have a buy-in and also an understanding of what that end goal is, actually, it's going to be very difficult for you to accomplish. So personally, I believe that a leader who is effective will ensure that they direct, lead and influence, ensuring that everybody is on board with the why, what's actually happening, what's the outcome and the objective. I think that's um, a very um, interesting uh, viewpoint, uh, Nicole, and uh, quite right um, as well. And if you were to think about um, your own um, leadership style just for a moment, how would you go about describing that? Do you very much align with that view that you've just um, put forward there? Absolutely. And I think, actually, if I think about how my career has evolved, I believe that in management and leadership roles historically, I potentially led more in a cohesive and coherent manner that was more directive in style. If I give people clear messages, there will be clear outcomes and actually there won't be any deviation from that. But what I think you lose then is potentially the ownership and also people feeling like they have a part to play within what the end goal is. Because I honestly believe as a leader, I am only as strong as those who are supporting me within the organization in which I lead. So actually now I would say I've moved more into a style of leadership that is inclusive, hearing the voices of those who are involved. Of course, you need somebody with strength and articulation and direction But actually, there's no reason why you don't provide people with the understanding as to why we are going in the direction that we are, hearing people's voices, ensuring that you can be adaptive and flexible um, to needs as they arise. I think uh, that's um, a really important point, uh, remembering to be inclusive and um, make sure that um, you are listening to those around you. And it's about striking a balance between clarity, making sure that messages are relayed clearly to including the views of others and really taking those um, into account, as you've mentioned there. Um, If we think about some of those individuals that you've encountered throughout um, your career, uh, Nicole, who've maybe had quite a profound influence on that leadership style that you've taken on, who would you say really Mm. sticks out? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, 
I think if I, there's certainly one manager that I can think about who used to lead a department, and this is quite early on in my career. And one thing that stood out to me about them was that they listened. And I probably didn't appreciate that until I had moved on into other organizations and actually extended further in my leadership role. They listened without being condescending. They heard what people said without rushing to a judgment. Um, And actually, I think they were quite patient. And often, as a lead, there are timescales, there are things that need to be completed and challenges on your time. But actually, with that individual, I I never felt rushed. I always felt heard. And at no point did I ever feel that actually, you know, you were a burden being placed upon them. So I think if there was somebody that I would look to model myself upon, I think some of those aspects of listening and patience and being genuine. Actually, yes, you might be representing an organization or leading a cause, but we are still human beings working together, which I think is crucial more so in the time of unprecedented challenge that we're in at this moment in time, more so than ever. I think that's absolutely right. Um, Ensuring that that humility is maintained, that inclusiveness, Uh that openness, as we've talked about, hugely, hugely important because being the ability to take people with you is absolutely critical right now in the context of COVID-19 because those people who have been inclusive really looked after the interests of those around them. They'll be the leaders who are really seeing results from those around them at the moment because they'll be much more willing and much more motivated to really muck in and go above and beyond given the way that they've been considered as part of the whole process. And actually, that, that could be in very simple contexts. I mean, I certainly can think about people in my personal life around me who haven't heard from their organization or those who lead it and others who have said, actually, just the odd check-in message, you know, team being brought together, key messages mean so much. You know, even just a short phrase or a card being sent to you or something personalized can have such a significant impact. Um, I think people often think that that has to be a grand gesture, but actually it's more recognition, time, and just being open and, and having that frequency in your communication so people don't feel left behind or not included. Absolutely right. Um, Keeping communication channels open is incredibly important Mm. because it not just relays key messages, but it also provides that much needed reassurance amid all of the uncertainty as well. And that's also a leader's responsibility ultimately, isn't it, to provide that at the moment? And and actually, we're a safeguarding organisation. So at the core of what we do, it's about safeguarding organisations to be able to implement through learning and knowledge and high quality CPD, the services they deliver. But actually, right at the forefront, if I'm not safeguarding my own team and thinking about their own well-being and promoting that within my leadership, actually, I can't go beyond and support my clients with what they need either. So, yeah, I, I think those concepts actually apply both internally within your own team, within the values, within your client base, within your service user base, certainly cross o- crosses over. Mm. And we've heard some incredible stories about how people have responded to uh, this crisis in many different ways uh, for the greater good. And have you been inspired by the reactions of the people around you as well, Nicole, during this period? Absolutely. I mean, if I think about the clients that we engage with, um, many early years providers, schools, colleges, voluntary sector organisations. In fact, I led a webinar on virtual working with a voluntary sector organisation last week and some of the organisations talking about how they have adaptive, creatively 
looked at keeping in contact with their service users, especially those who are particularly vulnerable due to isolation, bringing some of those areas of concern to the fore. It's really inspiring, really inspiring. And in terms of the future as well, if we think about the experience um, that handling this um, horrible pandemic um, is really um, going to bring to business leaders, there are some positives to take from this, aren't there, in the sense that it's brought us all together and also it's thrust us all out of our comfort zone and really helped us develop in a certain way. Absolutely. And I think, and certainly as a business lead myself, I'll be looking at the ways in which we work as an organisation. Actually, it's completely changed. We've realised that we can work from home and still provide an outcome. We've never been virtual training leads before, whereas now we're looking at that potentially being something we continue in the future. So I think it's going to change the way in which we support staff, the way in which we engage with others. And some of that will be really positive. Actually, we may be able to alleviate some of that commuting stress, long hours that people may face, the challenge of bringing people together in a room. And if we can do that differently and still have the same outcomes, then that's really positive. I think we'll see more of a work-life balance within our business communities, which I think for the well-being of individuals will be really positive. Absolutely right. And that's certainly going to be buoyed by this uh, renewed focus on mental health and on um, personal well-being that's really come about as a result of this period of self-reflection while we've been in lockdown. And if we do think more, Nicole, about what is to come over the uh, the next uh, 12 months or so before we do wrap things up on the programme today, um, do give me an idea of what you envision the next year holding for yourself and for ECP and also what you hope to achieve, not just in getting through this current pandemic, but also beyond it as well. Of course. Um, so I think for us in the immediate short term, as a business, what we need to do is adapt the way in which we provide our services, which we're certainly on the journey to doing so. We're engaging in virtual platforms. We've redesigned our content. But most importantly, we're going out and listening to our clients and understanding what their needs are. And I think diversifying the offer that we make at the moment is going to be crucial because organizations, I think, will find themselves at different points of a journey at differing times and not one response is going to fit every client, every organization, every business. So in the short term, I think continuing flexibility, being ready to adapt as and when we see things evolve and hopefully move towards what a new normal will be, but also looking at a balance as well. I think as a business lead, you mentioned rightly there, mental health and well-being. Actually, mental health and well-being, I can personally reflect, was not potentially the top of the forefront of our business aims and outcomes. And certainly this period has pushed that to the fore. Everyone has mental health. And as a company, I would want to pride myself that every employee would say, this organization supports my well-being and I feel safe as a member of staff here. So, yeah, I think that will be interesting for organizations moving forward. How are you going to continue to commit to that mental health and well-being of your employees? Mm, absolutely right. And I think in the uh, the next uh, few months, uh, Nicole, given how informative it's been uh, speaking to you on today's programme, it would actually be great to look at the situation in a few months, see how things have changed and maybe discuss the state of affairs then as well. Mm, of course, would be my pleasure.
Likewise, and um, it's a shame that we've just about run out of time uh, today, otherwise we could discuss it um, for most of the um, afternoon, I'm sure. But um, <laughs> it has been a real pleasure, uh, Nicole, having you on the uh, the programme. Um, really, really, really um, informative and insightful, as I say. And do take care and do stay safe in the meantime with everything still going on as well. Thank you. Same to you. That was Nicole Williamson, the Operations Director at ECP Limited. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 Football World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. During his professional footballing career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City. But most notably, he remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup competition. That came after his treble in England's 4-2 win over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Jeff and that's coming up next. Uh, We're now joined uh, though by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, Thank you very much for coming on today. uh, You're welcome, you're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Oh, there, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, who, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex, first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at, at football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He um, He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over the years, I guess he would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood and, of course, a great manager in Sir Alf Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that calibre can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's, that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager like, like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with 
your other players and of course they become your friends who did you look at you at the time uh when to inspire confidence in yourself was it more was it peter's i think probably well i was very fortunate to play with the teller of the players i did again mm-hmm. again extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of england and west ham and martin peters who was a fantastic player and some, as far as martin's concerned i think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, well, I do, I do understand clearly all walks of life. Leadership is at the top. is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, football team in any walk of life to be successful and it's quite evident I was in the motor trade for a long time as well selling car warranties to car dealerships and you could almost tell when you walked into the business uh, in a, many of the car dealerships you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all and so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership. And that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved with my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, at West Ham, your uh, plan came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man I'm sure when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, mm. Naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand, whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you. It can have a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and, of course, your life. But yep. he, in that era, I was involved for six or seven years. He, it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time, maybe overly strict, but at a time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across, and very few people. And he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn sheet, and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned, and I've taken it on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in a group that doesn't want to be part of it, you you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious things I think I've learnt over a long period of time. And is there, do you think, uh, a, a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could 
uh, perhaps pick right now that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it, only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be, be playing in, in the team. But in a couple of friendly games, more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, Norway, I think, in Denmark, mm. I didn't. I played two of the four games, and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay. He started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Allen, so mm. I, I had an impact of thinking I. At that stage, I looked like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Lee's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think Mm. I was just happy to be I'd be involved in the squad initially. Um, not at all. I didn't. You're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really. Looking back, out, out. So I never really felt people talk about pressure a lot, and it's there. And people, players talk about people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he moved one or two players out. The squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that I'll show you. You got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very, I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Um, we had some great players, but overall, they were great hard-nosed professional players. Um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realise there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows, in fact, starting this week over the next uh, two, three months. 
And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. But the, the the other ridiculous question I get asked: Did I realise there were people on the pitch? And of course, I jokingly say, "Yes, I was just about to to shoot to score the goal, and I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while, and said, oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch.' So that's uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows." <laughs> I joke and make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited, but just had a, look, had a glance around, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that such as stupid questions, really. Um... Oh, yeah, there are. There certainly are. I've got another one, which I won't bore you in two. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a jersey, or Channel Lines, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely... But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we. Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want. You got time. I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay. So I was uh, doing a, a, at a dinner in the Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about twenty minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden I heard a, somebody at the back who, who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> What a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Is, uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like I that. Just, but then I, again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make again, laugh that day. If you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, <laughs> but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff, I think um, you were a young man when this happened, when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by, by quick, one way or the other, people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are there are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and, of course, in, uh, England fans who... Um, I, I think probably uh, it would be very immodest of me to, to suggest I, I felt that somebody would looking to me for inspiration. Um, you, but, you don't but, uh, have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it, perhaps. Um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch is people must 
realise that that's, that has an influence, how you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field, surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team laterally. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader? Um, well, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team, if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolutely leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson, who's just absolutely, mm. you've got to take him as the first example, but Klopp's only done this over a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well, he's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think? Could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or? Even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think, yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah, well, the, the answer is straightforward. The answer is yes. Um, That's a good they, answer. <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, I know. Uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership, but uh, companionship and and level headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later. Well, I think we were I was very fortunate, and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. yeah, so many, and that's why we were successful because we had so many um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team. I think that that was outstanding, and uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about. Uh, all of them in, in that breath, and there was nobody. And I'm going back on an earlier earlier question for me: the um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, 
and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days every year uh, up until about five years ago. Of course, with, with the sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on with all together all those years later. It didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. the, um, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those, I would pick every one of the eleven players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else; they were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big Absolutely. a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We have some great and players. You- we have some great players, of course. But without the attitude <laughs> alongside that, going back to an earlier question, you we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the 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 whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word the word is showed. the word is the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes uh, together, everyone achieves more. And that, that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking, if, if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single mind single mindedness, dedication, Dedication to the job, um, thinking about that 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 role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. But if you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, wait, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not. Uh, they will not switch off for for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's you're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over the go over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.